lot of ground this morning. If you were hoping for one single sermon on not prohibiting a sorceress to live, then I'm sorry you will be disappointed. But we are going to cover the end of chapter 20 all the way to chapter 23, verse 19 today. And no, I am not going to read the entire portion out loud, but we definitely will be reading sections in there. We have come, uh, as we are walking through the book of Exodus, to Mount Sinai. A pivotal point in the book of Exodus, a pivotal point in the history of redemption, of what God is doing for his people and through his people and through other people. Uh, So we're sitting camped at Sinai. The tents are still up. And it seems for a while, at least, the people have stopped murmuring and complaining. And God has spoken. He has spoken to his people in chapter 20. He has given them the Decalogue or the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And as he does so and gives this law, the people are afraid. He calls Moses up to the top of the mountain, and he tells them more of what he wants them to live by. So you might be asking, why are we doing such a big chunk? Um, Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, verses, I should say, 20-22 to 23-19 are specifically applicable to Israel. In principle form, they are applicable to us and to anyone, but their, I should say, genesis of these commandments really terminate on Israel alone, a a church state, a state we are not. Um, Also, if you turn over to Exodus 24, Exodus 24, 7 says this. And he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. The phrase there, the book of the covenant is what we have in our Bibles as 2022 to 2319 approximately. Um, Some might include a few verses before or after there, but nevertheless, what we're going to cover today is one unit. It is called the Book of the Covenant. Sinai was inflamed, wrapped in smoke, and God spoke to all of Israel at one time. Everybody heard, right? And they heard the voice of the Lord, and they said, we're afraid. Moses, you go back up there, and you deal with him. We'll stay down here. Well, Moses goes back up there, and while he is up there, Yahweh gives Moses these words, and he is supposed to give them, of course, then to Israel. So these words from 2022 to 2319 are the book of the covenant. And these are the statutes, precepts, laws, commandments that Israel is to do. And that's another reason why I wanted to cover this in one sermon. Then also, I, I really believe that it's better for us to take the whole rather than the parts. The the meaning is found for us more in the whole than the parts. So that is why we're going to do that. So first off, I'm going to give a quick outline of 
2022 to 2319. I'm not going to read each portion, um, but this is what we have here. The very first set of laws that Moses gives from Yahweh are about altars. You might even have some of these headings in your Bibles. Laws about altars in 22 to 26. We'll come back to this, but it's extremely significant that Yahweh starts off these laws about the altar. The altar is crucial for Israel's life and livelihood. Okay, after that, we get into chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, and we have laws about slaves and households. After we get from 1 to 11, we'll get into 12, let's see, verses 12 to 17, which speak of capital offenses, which punishments are, um, excuse me, which crimes are liable for capital offenses. From 2118 to 2136, a large section, we will see the punishment for injuries done to animals or people. And that is in there, the classic Lex Talionis law of retribution, which we will get into a little bit later, but that is in there. Uh, fifthly, in chapter 22, verses 1 to 6, we have protection of livestock. In 22, 7 to 15, we have instructions on financial and business dealings with one another. In 22, 16 to 17, we have laws against sexual sin. In 22, 18 to 20, we have more capital offenses, this time in regard to religion. So, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, and whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. All of those things are concerning true Yahweh religion. Going on, we have in 22.21 to 23 verse 9, a large section which should, should resonate for Israel. And the reason why we would say should is because there are some, uh, you, can, you can categorize that section differently. Different commentators do it in different ways. But I put 22.23 to 23.9 all in one section because many three times in that section, God reminds Israel, I am the enforcer of these laws. And the reason why that should ring a bell is because God is appealing to them based on their past experience of being sojourners and slaves in Egypt, that they should then love their neighbor appropriately. Okay, so a heavy, heavy weight is laid upon hypocrisy, that they would be so benefited by God's kind deliverance out of Egypt, they must also then be one who is going to hear the compassionate or going to hear those who are um, less fortunate. So, for example, in that section, it says, uh, if you, in verse, in twenty-two, twenty-three, 
God says, if you mistreat them, that is the widow and fatherless child of verse 22. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Down in verse 27, this is building upon verse 26. I guess I'll start with that. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. And then going down in verse seven of chapter 23, keep far from a false charge. You do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will acquit the, acquit the, the wicked. Excuse me, I will not acquit the, uh, acquit the wicked. So in this passage here, it is a, a larger section because God is reminding Israel, you have been beneficiaries of my kindness. Don't you then turn around to your neighbor and be hard-hearted to them. That kind of hypocrisy Yahweh hates. And then lastly, in verses 10 to 19 in chapter 23, we have laws on weekly Sabbaths and triannual Sabbaths. So the Sabbath that should be celebrated every week, which should be to them as like a fresh, a, a cup of cold water. Being in slavery for over 400 years, no days off ever, they're told this is your day of rest and worship, right? This, is, this should be a day they love, not only is that weekly Sabbath mentioned, but also other Sabbaths, which is verse 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, associated with the Passover. And verse 16, the Feast of Harvest, which is the Feast of Pentecost. And in verse 16, also the Feast of Ingathering, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Various names for the same things, but Unleavened Bread, Passover, Harvest, Pentecost, Ingathering, tabernacles or booths, all of them are used to celebrate, and, and, and it is true, celebrate, have joy in the things that God has provided, namely salvation, deliverance from Egypt, harvest time, and God's provision and all these things. Okay, that's about as fast as I could fly through that. Hopefully, you were keeping track there. Just a couple quick words of application before we get into something else. The book of the covenant here in 2022 to 2319 is specific application of the Ten Commandments. And this is another reason why I didn't feel like we have to read and exegete every verse of this section. But 2022 to 2319 is specific application of the Ten Commandments. How is it that I shall not murder? How is it that I shall not steal? How is it that I should not take the Lord's name upon my lips in vain? Okay. Every command found in Exodus 20.22 20, to 23.19, the book of the covenant, can be rooted in the principles in the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 4 on worship are no doubt covered in chapter 23 regarding the Sabbaths. Commandment 5 on honoring your 
mother and father is covered in 21.17. You flip over to there. 21.17 says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. I'll get to later why the severity of that punishment is the way it is, but nevertheless, it is built upon the fifth commandment that the mother and father must be honored within the home. Uh, Chapter 21 also speaks of murder. Chapter 22 has stealing and coveting. 23 has lying. And there are also examples of how one should not commit adultery as well. And, And we must also understand this. When the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, our, our kind of reform tradition does this. The Ten Commandments not only should be followed in commission, like don't do like do these things, like obey this, but also in omission. So if we are told to not commit murder, we are to obey that by one, not murdering, right? We also tar obey that in preserving life. Okay, and that falls on all commandments, right? Taking the Lord's name in vain is to positively not speak lightly with the Lord's name upon your lips. It is also then not to put another God's name upon your lips and associate with them. Okay, so all these commandments fall in this this way. Second application here is that this is not an exhaustive list of commands. You know, you, uh, you buy a boat and you learn that there are some maritime laws, codes, regulations. You get a big, thick book of what you can and cannot do down to the very, very letter, okay? Or traffic laws or tax code, right? Books are big, I'm sure, okay? This is not an exhaustive list of every way in which the Ten Commandments are to be seen in in life. Not every single possibility and circumstance in life is given here in verses in, in chapter 20 to 23. But enough application so that Israel knows the Lord means his law. When he says, thou shall not murder, you shall not murder or there will be consequences. Or if you forsake his temple and you do not honor him and you have other gods before him, there are consequences for that. Okay? So this is not an exhaustive list, list but very descriptive situational si- situational situations situations where the Ten Commandments would apply to everyday life. And we have those categories, as I mentioned. We have altars, slaves, capital offenses, livestock, persons, injuries, finances, sexual sin, religion, general love for neighbor, and then also religious laws with the Sabbath. So the Lord expects his law to be specific. Um, I... To my shame, I I just was telling my children this morning, when mommy and daddy say, clean up your room, we actually mean clean up your room right away. Now, don't play on the way. 
Do it now. Okay. We usually just say, go clean up your room. And we assume, you know, do it right away. Don't play on the way. Don't go to the bathroom first or get a cup of water or, or stall in any way imaginable. Do what I say now. So when God says, you shall not steal, he says, don't steal. And let me tell you all the various ways I will set a context for you to know you shall not steal money, property, people, whatever it may be. Okay. So his, his law, his 10 commandments, they, they really show their teeth in this section we're covering today. All right. Now, first main point you can summarize this law together with is God loves life and justice. I have two points today, three if you include the outline. But the, the second point is God values life, human life, livelihood, and he values justice. This is seen in the very first precept. It might be odd. Why does God, after he talks about altars, why does he start off with slaves? Shouldn't there be uh, a more important topic to consider, like murder? You know? I think there's a very good couple of reasons. One, don't forget, Israel, this was you. <laughs> you were slaves for a long, long time. And now I'm going to set in motion descriptive laws of how your slavery should not be and how it should be. And another reason why he starts off with slaves is because God loves to look out for what we would just may say the little guy, the downtrodden, the lowly, the looked upon, the taken advantage of. God loves to make sure those people are kept in mind. So let me read verses one to six, chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, now we're getting into you know, the nuances. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the, say, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. That would be the tabernacle or the temple to the priest. His master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Okay. I mean, we, as 21st century Westerners, we look at this and say, well, this, it comes out of nowhere. There, there are very, very good reasons why God starts this way. And they're very kind. They're very kind reasons. Just break this down very briefly. This is not indefinite servitude. This is slavery for six years, contract length, six years, seventh year, you're free. Okay? 
Also, when these rules are followed, and and parents, I know you're saying, and you're saying this maybe about your kids. If these rules are followed, it goes well with them. (laughs) If the rules are followed, both the head of the home slash business owner and the slave, essentially an employee, are both protected. They're both protected. This view of what we call, what the Bible says as slavery, is a far, far cry from what we would say is slavery in our recent history. Ours was stealing people, trafficking them from their homelands, and transporting them in chains to a new land, selling them to an owner who possessed them for life, not just six years, and possess them without, for life without obligation to any restrictions and could resell them to someone else. That is prohibited, evil, vile, ungodly. We are not to steal one another and treat each other as possessions. But slavery here is spoken of as a really a contract that would be very akin to military service. I'm signing up to go into the Air Force for six years, and then I'm going to go out. I might stay in for longer. I might not. But here's my contract length. I'm going to keep that length. I'm going to keep that contract. And as we also read there, it's entirely possible that due to the nature of slavery, the slave and I'll just say the hired hand, says, I like my setup. I like my setup. I'm living in a home with a wealthy homeowner. I have my kids taken care of. I'm taken care of. My wife is taken care of. They treat me with respect. If he hits me and he causes injury to my eye, I get to go out for free. That's, that's said later on in chapter 21. But if he likes it, he can say, you know what? I like this. I'm going to do this. Keep in mind that the slave, again, I don't think slave is the, I think it would be voluntary servitude would probably be a better word. But the slaves were, they were a part of the extended family. They lived in the home or maybe in their own home on the grounds with the homeowner. And they were treated like extended family. Almost all business was small business. Now, there's no capitalism back then, you know? There's no school. Oh, I don't want to die. I'll go to education. I'll make my own money. I'll become, you know, the next rich person, whoever that is. That, that didn't exist. You want to make a living? You sell yourself into a family, work, get paid, and then go free and maybe start your own? That's just how the world worked. Almost all, here's a quote, almost all business was small business in the sense of family-owned and family-operated business. And someone who was in any sense an employee was not the owner of the business. They worked for the head of the family, usually lived with or near that family on its property, and was paid according to a formal, written, or verbal contract. That was somewhat more like the terms of enlistment used for military service today. These laws were good, you know. 
God is not setting up laws for slavery first so that he can pick on the little guy. No, he's setting that up first to show them this is how you must engage in this social workforce way of life we have going on right now. You should not definitely perform slavery like you were in Egypt, right? Make bricks. That's all you're good for. Just put those pyramids together, right? But they were, they were paid. They were hired hands. Going on in that very passage, we, we see a mention of daughters being sold into slavery. And virtually everybody agrees that this is a, a man acquiring a slave to be a wife and to bear children and to uh, expand the home. Verse seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out. She shall not go out as the male slaves do, right? If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her for, to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Listen to the words there. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these things, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Meaning, and, and virtually almost everybody agrees with this, this is a situation where someone is in some arranged marriage trying to procure a wife. And even though they are a slave, they, have, they are essentially a wife, much higher title than slave. And yet if she doesn't please him, verse eight, let's say she's barren. She can't bear children. He is not allowed her, not allowed to sell her to the Edomites or the Philistines or anybody else because he has broken faith. There was a implicit, actually explicit contract that he would provide for her. If he does so, but says, I'll give you to my son, how is she then treated? Like a daughter. No longer like a slave, but like a daughter. Women, I won't say they had no rights then, but they were, it wasn't equal. Okay, we'll put it one way. It was not equal as we know it today. Let's say he doesn't want her to go to his son and he just decides to keep her and maybe like, you know, cast her to the side and says, I'm going to grab another wife. Verse 10. The law says you cannot diminish your first wife's food, clothing, or marital rights. You are obligated to her. And verse 11, if you don't do these three things, she can go scot-free because you have already essentially tarnished her name and she can go out without payment of money. She doesn't have to pay you for freedom. She doesn't pay you for getting out of the contract or anything. You took it upon yourself. It didn't work out. I mean, to say it mildly. <laughs> and she can go either back to her own family or wherever. Okay. But there are protections. There are, there are rights. There are rules for slaves. There are rights and rules and protections for many vulnerable people. In verses, look at, uh, actually I already read it. In, in 22.22, 22, 
What does God say? You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Blanket statement. No qualifications. No, you know, here are some nuance. No. The fatherless child and the widow you shall not mistreat. The virgins in 22.16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And, and seduces, we have probably a different connotation in our English. But if he, if he entices her, like if he charms her to, to be with him and, and he lies with her, now you're hooked. <laughs> she must be your wife now. You're not allowed to just hook up with anybody and have no responsibility for the consequences of that action, okay? But verse 17 says, hey, if the father sees that he utterly refuses to give her, give her to him, that guy's a deadbeat. I don't want her with him. He, that is the guy who enticed the woman, shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins, okay? So, there are laws to protect the vulnerable. Widows, fatherless, virgins, the poor in verse uh, tw in, in 2225. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. Money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. You're not allowed to exact interest to someone who's already broke. That's criminal. <laughs> Now, the occasion for his poverty is a whole other thing. And we, we, if we read the entire passage here and the elaboration of these passages in Deuteronomy, if someone's poor, they can sell themselves into slavery, recoup some dignity, and get back on their feet, so to speak, for a limited time, and go off and, and, and go ahead and live their life. But the poor are not to be taken advantage of. The poor, the virgins, women, animals, widows, fatherless, they're all protected in God's law. It is a good law for those who would otherwise be taken advantage by sinful, crooked people. Okay. So, related to this protection to life is justice. The justice necessary to uphold the law. Flip over to chapter 21. Here's a very, very well-known passage. Let me start reading in verse 22. And you have to wonder, like, did you already, did something already happen that this law had to be put in place? How come it was worded like this, you know? When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. And just real quickly, there's another instance of this law is expected to be applied with good and fair discernment by judges of Israel, priests of Israel. Verse 23, if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
And we even have a follow-up there as an example. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the, go, let the slave go free because of his eye. Or he knocks out his tooth, and the next verse, he can go free because of his tooth. You've already damaged your slave. You're not allowed to offend him, injure him, and him stay within the contract. You voided that contract, right? But anyways, the, the lex talionis here is the law of retribution, Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. A, a law of retribution, which we're, I think we're all pretty familiar with. The meaning of this is that the punishment for transgression of the law and injury to someone else, they are different. But the punishment for transgressing God's law and offending another person should be appropriate to the degree of the injury and no more and no less. So in medieval times, someone steals a ship, uh, a sheep, they don't get hung. That's unfair. You know, you don't kill a man's life for a sheep's life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, stripe for stripe. The, the punishment fits the crime as we might say. But it is not just the punishment fitting the crime, but also the dignity of the person whom the crime was committed against. We'll get into that in a second. But here are some fun illustrations. God gives specific examples and rules for an application of this law of retribution. 21-28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So if the ox gore someone, it should be killed. It can't be slain and benefited from by eating and getting its meat, but the owner is not liable unless it was accustomed to gore in the past. I mean, it has rules for that. Verse 20, let's see. Verse 12 of chapter 21. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Yeah, that's fair. In fact, that's not new. We knew this in the, new, in the Noahic covenant. Blood for blood. Chapter 9 of Genesis. 21.15. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Now, this is not God's quick trigger finger on wanting to kill people. This is because of the dignity of the person who was offended. The mom and dad of the family are not people who should just be willy-nilly hit, struck, cursed, but must be revered and honored. So kids, we are not under this law. But keep in mind, honor your father, father and mother. And you can praise the Lord that we are not theonomists here and we do not hoist people back under a law of condemnation and a ministry of death, even though you might strike your father and mother and there are consequences to that, you won't be killed. Okay, there's a whole other thing on theonomy I'm not going to get into, but... Theonomy is simply, if you don't know, the uh, 
Well, in, in some sense, everyone is a theonomist. It means God's law, right? But in, in most contexts, theonomist means a resuscitating of the Old Testament law for application today. Okay, so that's 21.15. says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for sheep. Well, why the disparity? Why five for one or four for one? Why the disproportionate number? Shouldn't he give the ox back for the ox he took or the sheep back for the sheep he took? It's not only the transgression, it's also the, the offense of the victim. In this case, the owner of the ox or the sheep. And we have to keep in mind, then the ox, a five for one for the oxen was because the ox was used for multiple things, not just one thing. The ox was used to procreate. It was used as a, basically a Ford pickup to plow the fields. It was used as food. It was used in multiple ways. And so it's only fair that a beast of burden, which is used in such a variety of ways, must be repaid back at a different, at a different rate. Okay, so the rule is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, true justice. True justice to truly persuade, dissuade further crime to the criminal, but also to, for them to understand and correct themselves for better behavior, right? I mean, we see this in this, this misapplication of Lex Talianus in multiple ways today. Oh, someone rapes someone else and, and they just, I don't know, spend some years in prison and they go out free again. I mean, we don't have to get into like the border crisis or anything like that. But our laws are, are, are just slaps on the hand, slaps on the wrist. They don't serve the purpose of justice. The justice is to put down evil and also then to promote a, a correct and right behavior. But I do, to go back to what I said earlier, this law of retribution, it is to punish the criminal, but also make aware the dignity or the value of the person they have offended. So smiting parents has a different punishment than smiting a sheep. Sorry, PETA. Parents are worth more than animals. All, animal, all people are worth more than animals. But the dignity of the offendee matters. And I think we can carry this rule of law of retribution over not only from Israel to today, in some fair sense, in principial form, but also, what is the offense of smiting God? If smiting an ox is one thing, and smiting a parent is wholly other, punishable by death, what is the crime for smiting God? 
Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful, wonderful way of saying God is an infinitely pure spirit, infinite in purity, infinite in majesty, infinite in beauty, infinite in perfection, and infinite being. Surely, infinite in dignity, surely such a perfect being would require infinite punishment to sin against. And that's only one, that would only be one sin, let alone a life of continual sin, right? God demands great punishment against himself because he is of infinite worth. And thus, as an offender of God, we do not, we do not want justice. We should quickly cry out mercy. We don't want mercy. We don't want justice. Justice against God lands us in a deep, dark lake of fire. Mercy, mercy is what we would plead for. Mercy implies awareness of guilt and the the knowledge of a fair punishment coming down. Mercy, please be merciful to me. I don't want that. I know I deserve it. Please be merciful. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, says the tax collector, who's very much aware of his transgression, not just against his neighbor, but against God. And for that mercy, God creates the altar. So, we have an outline of the passage. We know that God loves life and justice. It's very apparent. He loves life and justice. And he also has designated this so that life is lived before the altar. Life is lived before the altar. Chapter 20, verse 22. And Yahweh says to Moses, Thus he shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall not make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you weld your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may may not be exposed on it. Make it waist high. Go over to verse uh, chapter 23. Verse 18, this is in the passage of the Sabbaths and religious obedience, observance of these feasts. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Okay, what does that have to do with me today? A lot. Um, The wonderful thing about how the Bible is written, it's all the various, what we call literary devices, how they write. 
The literary device we have here is called inclusio. It is when the writer has a subject, has a whole host of other things, and then he repeats the initial subject. Okay, so for here, our inclusio is altars. Here's how you need to understand the altar. And then the altar mentioned with uh, the Sabbaths. And the inclusio functions like this. The brackets are important. And everything in the middle of the brackets needs to be understood in light of the brackets. So rules on slaves, murder, virgins, cattle, ox goring another person. It's all in context. What's the context? The context is there is mercy for the transgressor. Who can fulfill these laws? Now, you might say, well, I definitely am not going to permit a sorceress to live. I can fulfill that law, right? Or I'm not going to lie with an animal, or I'm not going to commit idolatry, or I'm going to be very kind to widows and fatherless children. We might have a pretty decent although not perfect, because we need to be perfect, but we might have a pretty decent reputation if we hand-pick, cherry-pick a couple of these laws. But we cannot, Israel cannot obey all of these laws to perfection. Not at all. And the point with the altar is, you're going to sin against each other, you're going to sin against God, and there's mercy. There's mercy at the altar. Another way to say this is that all of Israel's life is religious life. There's no compartment work, hobby, church, family, whatever. All of life is religious. All of life is lived before God. There's no such thing as I can dabble in this and it won't affect my walk with Christ. There's no such thing as I can do X, Y, and Z and it won't affect A, B, and C. Sin will find you out. All of life is religious. There's no irreligious and religious sections of life. It's all lived under Christ, under God. The law shows us here how we ought to live, but it also shows us how we do not live. And thus incriminates us, condemns us. But the law does not just point out abstract transgressions. As if, like our children like to say, I didn't know that's what you meant, mom. (laughs) I didn't know that's what you meant, dad. No, the law points out very specific, down-to-earth application. I don't know what it really means to not bear false witness against my neighbor. Well, here's one. Don't spread a false report. 23.1, 
And don't be impartial, excuse me, don't be partial to some just because they're poor. In verse 3 of 23, you're not righteous if you're being kind to the poor person in a judgment case. I should say not just kind, but being partial. But these laws, to curse one's parent is to offend them and is punishable. To neglect an ox that is known to go around goring people is punishable. These are actual laws for actual life situations. Thus, all of life is religious. All of life matters. There's no section, crevice, cranny, corner of life that doesn't matter to God. He wants all. He wants all of you. Every single desire of your heart to be for him and him alone, excluding all others. Now, can you live that way? No. So God's given an altar. He has given an altar. What is an altar? What does it represent? The altar is God's chosen place to accept his people on the basis of their offering. His chosen place to accept his people on the basis of their offering. Nothing else matters. Now, they didn't intend to do this or they were trying to do better. The altar is the definitive moment to reconcile sinner and Lord. The altar is where the sinner comes clean, confesses. So, Joe Benjamin strikes a slave, or he lies with a prostitute. Or he mistreats a widow. Or he is, he is dealing in his business dealings with others in a crooked fashion. He goes to the altar. He takes his unblemished lamb. He sacrifices that lamb because it is a cost to him. He sacrifices that lamb, though, in his own place because he is a transgressor of the law. He's guilty. He's a criminal. He's guilty of his actions. And the Lord looks upon the sacrifice on the altar, accepts the offerer, and the animal's killed. The animal is a substitutionary sacrifice. And that's not redundant. It's not just a sacrifice to please God. It's a sacrifice so that the offerer still breathes and doesn't die. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb for the sinner. The law makes them aware of their sin 
They bring the animal to sacrifice and place in place of the guilty offerer. And God looks upon the sacrifice on the altar and pardons the guilty person of their transgression and assures them the debt has truly been paid in full. There's no, well, I know you sacrificed the little lamb, little fluffy, but I still hate you. There's none of that in the gospel. The offerings of the bulls, goats, sheep, turtle doves, if you're poor enough to be that way, placate the wrath of God against the sinner and then allow, and so to speak, the Lord to be favorable to the offerer. He was guilty. And now the Lord is favorably kind and pleased with him on the basis of a different death. But God provides the altar. God provides the altar. It is the place of confession and assurance of forgiveness. When we fail to keep the law, we look to the altar and find forgiveness. The Old Testament saint would frequent the altar. Not only morning and evening, not only triannual Sabbaths, you break the law, punishment and or trip to the altar. Imagine living in that, what 2 Corinthians calls a ministry of death. Not just a ministry of death because there's a dead, Fluffy's laying dead on the altar. Because death is hanging over the head of the offerer all the time. The blood and bulls and goats, they're not taking away this sin. They're just kicking the can down the road until God finally calls those sins into court. <laughs> the Old Testament state frequents the altar in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we hear this three times in the book of Hebrews. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. Once for all. Different verse, 9-12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, excuse me, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. 9.26, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Who is the he? Christ. The Old Testament lived in constant threat, nerve-wracked anxiety. God will smite me. This will kill me. I slipped up. I'm sacrificing Fluffy again and Fluffy's brother and Fluffy's other brother. (laughs) It's just death upon death upon death upon death until Christ comes and the cross, his altar, we look on once. We look on once. And I think there is something to be said. You have this plain altar. It's not gold. It's not bronze, as it will be. It's an altar of earth. God says, you want to build with stones? Okay. It better not be hewn stones, handcrafted stones. I want it raw, rough, plain. If that is not a type of the sacrifice of Christ and the altar of an old rugged cross. His altar, we go to once. But we go to his altar once for life, for justification. But we should go back to his altar, the cross, again and again and again. Why? To be justified again and again? No, no, no. But to confess sins and then what? Be assured they're forgiven. There's a great (coughs) dance being had here with the altars. The altar is a place of confession and simultaneously a place of assurance. That what I am truly guilty for, because I wouldn't bring Fluffy to sacrifice if I wasn't guilty, I am also truly assured it is paid for in full. Believers, you can be assured your sins are paid in full by the sacrifice of Christ once for all. The believer has no fear of the law. Yes, the law reveals our sin, reveals our shortcomings, our failure to be perfect, but look, look at what's going on in the broader picture of Exodus 19 to 24. God calls his, calls his people up. Trumpet blast, come up to me. We don't want to. We're sinful. Your law tells us we don't want anything to do with you. And the book of the covenant says, here's some specificity to that law. In case you did happen to think you obeyed the first 10. But I want you to understand the specificity, these down to earth applications of these laws in this light. There's an altar for when you sin. There's an altar for when you sin. 
and you will receive mercy. The law shows us people how to live, but the law also shows the high cost of breaking that law, death. But the law also shows the altar where sin that has been exposed by the law can be paid for by a lamb. Or better put, the lamb. And consequently, we receive forgiveness and assurance. Just to paraphrase 1 John 2 again, the Father has put forward His Son as a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Actually, better put, the propitiation of Christ is a wrath-exhausting sacrifice. For there is no wrath for the one in Christ, for the one he took the sins away for. We're going to have the Lord's table in a minute, and I'll revisit some of these things, but just to close with this, you have an altar. You have an altar. Yes, run to Christ, the cross of Christ, the altar for life. But stay there as Pilgrim does in the Pilgrim's Progress. Look back on that cross frequently and say, that's where my sin has been paid in full. And that's also where I receive assurance I will not be condemned ever again. For that lamb went gladly, willingly to buy his people's freedom. Let's pray. Gracious Father, full of mercy you are, full of grace, grace upon grace. Fill our heart with this double truth. We cannot live up to your standard of perfection revealed in the law, but you have provided an altar. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, so that all who believe in him, all who would desire to put him on that altar instead of their own lives will no doubt have life. Remind us of these good promises. Amen. When we stand for